Welcome to East Asia Now, a podcast that brings you informed perspectives on current issues related to East Asia. In this episode, CIS Associate Director David Fields speaks with Junko Habu, Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. Habu discusses her interest in food security in Jomon, Japan, and what lessons prehistoric societies can teach us in our own quest for sustainability. So, Professor Habu, thank you so much for coming on our show. Well, thank you. One of the things that I think our listeners might be interested in is how people come to work on the topics that they work on and how they come into the disciplines that they work in. So I wonder if you could just briefly sketch out why you're an anthropologist, why you're an archaeologist, what was your path there, and then why Jomon, Japan? Okay. I'm very happy to answer that question. I was born in 1959, and I'm 60 years old now. (laughs) And when I was a child, uh, Japan was going through a rapid economic growth period, and a lot of archaeological sites in the suburb of Tokyo were getting destroyed. Mm. So in my parents' house area, there were many archaeological sites that were being bulldozed, and uh, I was interested in archaeology by picking up some of the potsherds in the sites nearby my parents' place. And uh, that led me to seriously thinking about majoring archaeology. But in Japan, archaeology was very much part of the discipline of history with a focus on descriptive, um, very detailed um, descriptive work. And I really wanted to link artifacts to the life ways of the past people, and anthropology seemed like the best way to do so. And that led me to study anthropological archaeology in North America, where there's a strong link between the study of hunter-gatherers and archaeology. So this was something that you came to when you were quite young. Yes, I was 10 years old. And did someone have to explain to you what archaeology was at Mm -hmm. that point? Well, there was an undergraduate student who was majoring archaeology. He was living two minutes away from my house. Okay. And uh, he took me to a first kind of weekend rescue work of a shell midden near near the area. And actually, my mother found it. She let him know that there is a seemingly like a shell midden remains. Okay. And he decided to do a rescue work. And uh, I joined that work. I see. So that was when I was 10 years old, um, the fourth grade. And, and can you tell me what a midden is? I think I know, but I'm not yes. sure. It's basically garbage dump okay, that's of what I historic thought. people. But okay. um, because of the calcium from shells, um, all, all the organic materials are usually well-preserved at shell middens. I see. So it, it is true that archaeologists spend a lot of time in other people's garbage. Yes. Okay. Definitely. <laughs> so, so, and how did you come to focus? And, and the, the focus of your work is on the Chomon mm-hmm. in Japan. And mm-hmm. how did you come to focus on that particular period? Well, because the archaeological sites near my house were predominantly Jomon archaeological sites. What's interesting about the prehistoric Jomon period in Japan is that most of the sites are located on top of hills 
And we are wondering whether the Jomon people knew the tsunami problems. And that is one of the big questions. But in any case, if you go to um, <clears throat> the area on top of hills, sunny areas, you it's very likely that you are actually um, on top of a prehistoric Jomon site. So I was interested in Jomon pottery to start with, and mm -hmm. that led me to work on the Jomon period. I wonder how archaeological research in Japan, mm -hmm. particularly Jomon archaeology, is related to questions of Japanese nationalism and historical interpretations of Japanese history. Sure. Um, Japan has a history of going through a very ultra-nationalistic period during the Second World War. And during that period, basically, people could not talk about the presence of prehistoric hunter-gatherers because the country was supposed to have been established by the descendants of the god, that um, emperors, the imperial families was supposed to have been coming directly from the um, God's line. I see. So even though archaeologists were able to classify potters, they couldn't really talk much about the presence of oh. hunter-gatherers. And at the end of the Second World War, basically all the elementary school teachers had to apologize to their students saying that, sorry, what we thought was all wrong. There were actually um, <clears throat> very different story that you can tell from archaeology. And in that regard, studies of um, prehistoric Japan played a major role to understand what really happened in the past. And um, from the 1950s, 60s on, many Japanese archaeologists put a lot of emphasis on that aspect of archaeological studies. So you, you study prehistoric Japan, mm -hmm. but I know also that, that you think that there are insights from studying prehistoric Japan that apply to today. Right. So what are the insights that you feel like you have gained from your own work that can apply to ecological challenges that, that we're facing right now? What I'm interested in is the implications of losing food diversity mm -hmm. in the long run. For a long time, I was working on the issue of subsistence intensification, which means focusing on a limited type of staple food, most likely plant food. Mm -hmm. And I think that happened in Japan at around 6,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. And when I was talking about subsistence intensification, nobody working on contemporary food issues was interested in what I was doing. Ah. When I said loss of food diversity may have put people into a big trouble even during the prehistoric period, uh. then people working on um, contemporary food issues said, that is exciting. Uh, okay. So that made me realize how to phrase what I'm doing and how to frame what the archaeological result in the broader context is very important. This may be... Not a question that you can answer exactly, but when you look at prehistoric populations, do you feel like they are more or less sustainable than, say, the the current uh, the current culture and mm -hmm. resource use of a place like modern Japan mm -hmm. or modern America? 
question. First of all, you need to remember that Jomon pe period lasted for more than 10,000 years. Okay. So I see a lot of changes through time. I think up until about 7,000 years ago, they were hunter-gatherers who were fairly mobile and the population density was low. So it was very sustainable, but the mm, population density was so low. And after that, we see higher population density. And I think on the whole, they had many backup plans. In that regard, I think it was sustainable. I see. Today, we do not really have many backup plans. And uh, thus, if you hit one problem, then that can easily lead to a major collapse. And I think that's a big problem today. But you see similar problems at a smaller scale I see. Um, in the past. And uh, part of my research focuses on whether that kind of similar problems occurred at a smaller scale during the prehistoric period I or see. not. It, it sounds like at a certain extent, though, we're talking apples and oranges when you're looking at a society that has lasted for 10,000 years. Right. And then we're really still in the, the infancy of what we might call a modern, interconnected, global society. Correct. I think one issue is that in the past, if one civilization or one um, major culture collapsed or um, hit a major problem, you had others. Mm. And today, everything is so tightly connected that a collapse in one part of the world may lead to the collapse of the rest of the system. And in that regard, I believe the vulnerability that we are facing today can easily lead to a problem at the global level. And it's not as if prehistoric people weren't connected, but I think the um, way things worked was much more diverse. And I think diversity is a key issue that for today, we need to think about similar systems that even if part of the world faces a major problem, then um, the rest of the world um, should be able to support and thus stop it from making it to become a global problem. And as an archaeologist, is collapse something that you think about on a, on a daily basis? Yes. Societal collapse. Yes, we do. We also talk a lot about the validity of the concept of collapse because usually it's not a total um, collapse. That um, It's more of restructure, that reorganization of the system. So part of what was there usually moves on to the next phase. But what you see is a very different form from what was there. So um, <clears throat> collapse is not necessarily a negative term, but um, if it comes with a hard landing with a lot of casualties, then it becomes a problem. So if you're facing a collapse or a major reorganization, my main concern is how can we can make it as a soft landing situation so that we can think of a constructive way to move on to the next phase. And do you think that this makes you more optimistic or less optimistic about the <laughs> challenges of climate change? Uh, good question. Because I think uh, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know if alarmist is the right term, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of thinking out there that climate change could possibly be the end of human civilization as right. we understand it. 
And it, it seems like what you just said about collapse mm -hmm. is quite interesting, mm -hmm. and that humans, as a species, do seem very resilient mm -hmm. and and very adaptable. And and yeah, so so I wonder if that makes you see what's going on and think, no, humanity will survive and we'll get through this, or maybe right. because you know maybe better than most people, the pain and disruption of societal okay. societal collapse it could make you mm -hmm. more pessimistic. I believe it made me feel more optimistic in mm -hmm. terms of what we can do now. In the long run, I don't know if it makes me feel more optimistic or not. We just had a big conference after the 311 earthquake and Fukushima accident mm -hmm. of 2011. Um, actually this Friday and Saturday in Berkeley, we had a big conference. And uh, part of that conference was a film screening of several films in the future during the Anthropocene period. And one of them was just showing gigantic mushrooms, pretty much that's it, no humanities. So that may be what we are looking for in the long run, but in the meanwhile, there are a lot of people who feel that something needs to be done. And climate change situation, dealing with archaeology, we did face major, major climatic changes, not necessarily human-impacted climate change, but if the population density is very low, climate change is not a big deal. Um, two centigrade, temperature higher, four Fahrenheit, you just move to more comfortable place, mm -hmm. that was no problem. That's how prehistoric people handled uh, the climatic changes. Today, with the higher population density, that is not an option. And also, I'm more concerned about chemical and toxic um, pollution and uh, nuclear waste situation and nuclear accident aftermath. These are really urgent issues that people need to deal with. And for these, what's happening in different parts of the world, the more I learn about actual case studies and the severity of the damage, I feel that sometimes I really feel that, well, can't, can't we do something right now? And there are so many things we can do, but it's not happening. And in that regard, Sometimes I feel, well, archaeology is exciting, but it may not be the best way to deal with some of the urgent issues. On the other hand, that's what I've been doing, and I think that's the best part that I can contribute to the broader discussion. So for now, I'm sticking to archaeology, but we'll see what will happen. All right, Professor Junko Habu, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. East Asia Now is produced by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This podcast is made possible by a Title VI grant to support international education from the U.S. Department of Education. For more information, please visit eastasia.wisc.edu. Our music is a traditional Korean sanjo, performed by violinist Sohyun Park Altino.